complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Damn, that whiskey's good. Oh, I needed this. This is a this is a drink that I'm celebrating, fam. Are you back with your main B? Are you still with your side? I'm piece? actually not. I'm still with the Mistress Lafroig. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, basic. Expect Lafroig for the next month or so. I would say. All right. Just All right. Like, I, I'm. I'm not pinching pennies. We're very much set to make our down payment. It's just every cent counts in the bank. Yeah, you like, don't want to have to like you know move a bottle of the fluid or uh, a Vlagavulin. Uh, absolutely, a Vlagavulin, right? Yeah, that's true. Use everything you can. Eat all your food. Everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're at, we're actually pretty excited about that. It's just doing like a pantry reset. That's, that's always nice. a good. That's I like that when we move. Great feelings. What you, what's uh what you got for updates, Kat? Like life updates? Yeah, what happened this week? Did you like <laughs> write anymore? Or? Uh, I'm working on another op-ed um, that I'm hoping to finish this weekend and then hopefully can give to the editors to start shopping around next week. And that's about it. Days nice. are getting longer. It's kind of warm here. It's nice. Starting been, to feel like I can do things after work, so my day doesn't feel like it's just work, which is nice. It's glorious. Yeah, it's great. Although I did get followed while I was running the other day, which kind of put a damper on the run. But oh, wait, what by a vehicle or what? Yeah, and it it didn't last long, and I, you know, maybe the guy was confused, but he fo- he followed me in his truck and like slowed down and then pulled up ahead of me and pulled over. And started like what? saying stuff out the window and I had my headphones in and I just was like, basically looked at him like, no, oh, and gosh. just kept and then like That's picked up my freaky. face and ran. I don't like that. Yeah, it was a little scary because I like saw him and then and then I could tell I was being and then I could tell he was behind me and then I could tell he was driving unusually slow. Mm-hmm. And then he, when he sped up to like get ahead of me and park, then I was like, oh, fuck. And I had a moment where I thought like, should I turn around? And maybe I should have. But mm-hmm. so I was in a quiet little part of the neighborhood. Then I was just like, I'm just going to book it. <laughs> so, yeah, been running twice now this week. Look at you suck. go. <laughs> you suck. Okay. Okay. Oh, I'm not much of a I'm runner either. definitely but... feeling the lungs, the Rona in the lungs. I was going to say, do you have any, I'm, I, I can't tell if I'm being totally paranoid or not, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm starting to notice an impact on my lungs. I didn't really notice it when I was running, but I'm noticing it just like all the time. Oh, yeah. Which is a little scary. Are you still tasting food funny? Yeah. Yeah. Are you serious? Not everything. It's actually, it's mostly not, well, it's not everything I taste, like just certain things now, like almonds, unfortunately. I keep eating Uh, them though. Um, uh, Beans. And like hoppy beer, which also sucks that I can't, it just tastes weird. But it's mostly, it's smell, like certain things just smell terrible damn like hmm. coffee oh no oh <laughs> this okay. tastes really good though all right good to know tell us about our bev all right well <laughs> yesterday was saint patrick's day mm-hmm. oh dang yeah it was yes it was so i <laughs> decided 
that we would do some Irish coffee this evening. Oh, nice. So, got myself some decaf coffee. Might be the first time I've ever bought decaf coffee beans <laughs> in my life. Sacrilegious is what it is. A little bit, that but, hurts. you know, I get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> it's Thursday night. It's Thursday night, and we have... We all have adulting to do tomorrow. Yeah, so. we're busy beavers. Absolutely. <laughs> the saying goes. <laughs> all right, right, that's the saying, right? That's the saying. Okay, all right. We're yeah. busy beavers. The play on it in the office is <laughs> Michael gives Phyllis a trophy that says bushiest beaver. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> And that is oh, primo God. shit right there. That's that yeah. is why The Office is the top show on in my all time. Yes, hell yeah, dude. That's so good. Well, listen to last week's episode. We talked about <laughs> The Office. Look at the show notes. We got a link to a fun little cold opening about the Matrix. Before scene, yeah, about the Matrix. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're drinking Irish coffee tonight. It's a lovely one and a half ounces of. Irish whiskey, an ounce of simple syrup, about an ounce of heavy cream, and then I filled up the mug with some coffee, some decaf coffee tonight. What kind of Irish whiskey did you use? Fun fact, I used all of the Irish whiskey last night when we were celebrating (laughs) St. Patrick's Day, so I actually used bourbon. All right. But generally, you would use like Tillamore Dew. I was going to say, that's the only one I know, Mm -hmm. Tillamore Dew. Tillamore Dew is delicious. I knew a guy from Tillamore. Was he fun? Yeah, until he got, until he got angry. Oh. Which my friends, my friends will know what I'm talking about. Oh, oh no! We worked in the kitchen together. Oh, gotcha. Yep. Well, I've always wanted to go to Butte for St. Patrick's Day. I heard it's just crazy, but it's a Wednesday, you know, so I couldn't make it happen. Yeah, don't they normally do? And maybe they didn't this year, but don't they normally have some kind of like big event? there no i'm sure it's something that happens they they go crazy i mean they usually have a big fireworks show and just like street parties and like yeah it it gets nuts because there was an irish like migrant community there right like correct yep at the end of the 19th century yeah Mm -hmm. it's very well known actually all through ireland montana is because of butte that's right okay Yeah. yeah I learned, I learned today that Montana Tech in Butte is kind of world famous for like petroleum and energy engineering degrees. Mm-hmm. So much so that like my boss at the refinery, when he was going to Montana Tech, like he said a good chunk of his class were people who were like uh, essentially ex- exchange students from like the Middle East and India, like. Mm-hmm like Montana tech is the place to send your kids. If you are an oil family and they need to take over the business, basically. Uh, that's huge. And then MSU in their, in their chemical engineering department, right? There's a ton of, uh, students from Turkey, quite a few from Egypt and then a bunch from Saudi Arabia. And they all are doing like processing, like, um, chemical processing degrees. Yep. Which is the other side of oil production. Pretty cool. That is impressive. That's impressive to me. Like, I don't, it just weirds me out that Montana would be like famous for something like that. I don't know. It just caught me off guard. I was like, wait, what? Like Montana's on the map somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they're like, that's like a good thing to be on the map for. 
Yeah. Well, speaking of being on the map, Gilmore did you guys too. hear that NPR the indicator podcast about Bozeman's housing market? Yes. Oh, yes. That one was yep. solid. I looked at pictures of the guy holding the uh, please sell me a home sign. Same. I never look at the Bozeman Chronicle, and that was not even that long ago. I yeah, know, I right? I saw him a few times. Yeah. He was oh. like, he was on the corner, I think, of Black and Main, and Main Street. Right, yeah. 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 I used to see him a couple weeks in a row on my yeah. way home from work. Yeah. Okay, guys, I have been trying to turn off the printer like four <laughs> times now, and it keeps, it's never, ever like made random noises, ever. It's cursed. It's a curse. And it it's is, cursed. it is making random noises. I yeah. think I have a curse personally with these things. On your printers? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, just like in any room I'm in, I swear to God, my house is like, there's a lot of strange sounds that aren't just like settling you know, like normal a home settling. Oh. That's, it's not just that. I had a door just like swing open in the middle of the night. Fucking terrifying, honestly. <laughs> I was really scared. Oh, what? What? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. How many stories like this do you have? Because this, let's just scrap the entire episode and just. No. <laughs> We're talking no. spooky ghosts. <laughs> Absolutely. Spooks. Is that why the lights were flickering last week? Maybe. Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe I have a ghost that's following me. You have something attached to you. I tried to, to make you. a deal with it. Astral vampires like, attached to you. Astral vampires. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I did move my, I dusted off my old Bible and moved it next to my bed after that door <laughs> opened because I was like, you know Whoa. what? I've got to speak some good energy into this room. So. Whoa. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, it was really strange because I, like, I won't. I'll just share this quick detail. Sure. Yeah, we don't yeah. have to totally derail things. But I was dead asleep. It was like three o'clock in the morning. My closet door, uh, like you have to force it closed for like the little lock to really engage. So mm -hmm. like you, wind can't blow it open. Like when that thing's engaged, it's fucking closed. And like, it's hard to even open. So in the middle of the night, I hear this like sound, like like somebody rattling a doorknob, and then and I I like literally shot up out of bed, and as I sit up, the door just swings open. No, what? thank you. And I sat there for a second, and I was like, "What the fuck?" And then I realized like I should turn on a light, and I should like figure out what's going oh on. Oh my and gosh! Nothing there, and you know, like the windows were closed. It wasn't like mm -hmm. air pressure oh, changed and forced wow. it open. I couldn't figure it out. Okay. Put, yeah. your, put yourself back there for a moment, if you will, and I want to know <laughs> if you can think of, like, could you articulate what you were feeling between the sitting up in bed and having, like, the rational thought that you should turn the light on? Oh, yeah. Uh, I was kind of just, was you know, it it's shock? funny, I actually, it was, it wasn't, I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared for that split few seconds mm -hmm. i like realized i should be scared okay and then i turned on the light and was like i should go make sure that like so i don't know like, i should just do something would, so like it was it was just like a neutral just blast of energy between waking up and then starting to have the thought that you should feel scared i would say yes yeah i didn't have like a chill up my spine or anything like that it was just yeah it was just kind Whoa. of like i was taking a second it was like my brain was slowly computing like what i had just seen Whoa. Because it was, it was just strange. Whoa. And then I remember telling my mom the next day, and I was like, yeah, I think I have a ghost. And, and she was like, oh, no, you don't. And I told her the story, and she was quiet for a second. And she was like, well, 
yeah, maybe, maybe say some prayers out loud. <laughs> I was like, oh, damn. oh, wow. Thanks, mom. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> I've um, now haunted your printer, I guess. Yeah, Apparently. there you go. It's following you. Dang. You're the. Yeah. It's attached to you somehow, Cat. It sounds like I. I, I have a. I have a spook story. You guys. You guys want it? I can give it to you in five minutes. It's a good one. Hit me. Do it. So, um, just shortly after getting married, my wife and I were asked to house sit for, um, the family that we actually we use their backyard for our wedding like we rented out because they have this gorgeous property like right on the river oh it's it's perfect our wedding photos are perfect but so we go to uh like house sit for them torna you know who i'm talking about oh i know yeah and uh so we're we're house sitting we're also taking care of like a six month old yellow lab puppy who has a ton of energy. She was so much fun to play with and all that. But so our first night we go to bed in the guest room and, uh, like we put the, we put the dog in, in a room. Uh, question. Is it the uh, bedroom that's on the left when you go down the stairs? The, the one we slept in. Yeah. The one I think, right. It's right at the bottom of the stairs, but I think you go right. Right. Okay. Gotcha. That one, like at on the end, basically, it's the mm-hmm. one I got dressed in too for uh, the wedding as well. Gotcha. But uh, yeah, so we we put the dog in her owner's room and shut the door, and we go to bed and like shut off all the lights. Everything's cool. We go to sleep. Like middle of the night, I wake up to my wife screaming a scream that I have never heard before, and. She she is like incoherent. I like shoot up out of bed. And the the weirdest part about this is that we both saw something or at least think we saw something. And we we independently described what we saw to a third person before we shared what we like we were I because my first thought was like Okay, was it something where like she had sleep paralysis? She thought she was seeing like a shadowy figure or whatever. Very common in sleep paralysis moments. Um, and maybe my brain just like because I know about sleep paralysis or something like filled in my memory somehow. But so what we both independently saw the instant before I turned the light on was a extremely like unnaturally tall humanoid looking just darker than a shadow just mass that was like mm. probably more than like seven feet tall because it was at this like weird hunch in where its neck should be and it's it was giving me shivers and it was <laughs> yeah no, no i have a story no i have a sh- i have a story next and it was oh god okay so <laughs> that happened at their house and it was over dixie's side of the bed and i turned the light on and like nothing obviously nothing yeah I, I say obviously, maybe that's not so obvious, but like th- the fact that I like my first thought was like, holy shit, this is crazy. So like we woke up and like started checking the house together, like <laughs> white knuckling each other's hands, like, holy shit, what just happened? Very full of like, it wasn't like a neutral burst of energy. Like you had cat, like it was instant dread is what it, Ugh. what we both felt. And, but I, I did like that night I was like okay if you saw something don't tell me we'll tell someone else first 
and we told the same person and like we described the same thing and that has yeah. like fucking wigged me out ever since did you talk to the homeowner about it yes yes we did and did you were, oh well mm. we <laughs> we did i think they didn't take it seriously or like gotcha. didn't want to maybe but we were like yeah we had a really scary night uh and they were like, oh, your house is fucking terrifying. And they were like, oh, so sorry. <laughs> no. So the other weird the, the other weird thing is like you have to pass the room where the dog was sleeping to get yeah. to the room we were sleeping in. And the dog the entire time, even through Dixie and I freaking out fast asleep, like no noise, no barking. And she mm. she was like a very talkative dog. Even when she wasn't, you know, when her spidey sense wasn't tingling or whatever, but she mm. was just fast asleep through the whole thing. Wow. Mm. Well, now, what was your experience? Okay, so I don't know if I'd ever mentioned this to you, but I had almost the same thing happen to me at their house. Nope. And it must have been around the same time because no. it was when I was dog-sitting. <laughs> Fuck that when dog. She, when she was a puppy. <laughs> yeah. No And way. that's why I asked if it was the room down on the left. I had house sat for them many times, like, because they have animals and everything like that. You never know when, what's just playing in your mind and whatnot when you're out in the country all alone and everything like that. Exactly. I had put the dog down to sleep and I went to bed and I had like a really, really restless night of sleep. And it's the first time that I ever, well, the only time that I experienced any kind of like true sleep paralysis. Mm. And I remember the whole night feeling like there was a heavy weight on my chest. Yep. And I couldn't sleep. And then I woke up in a panic and it felt like someone was pushing down on my neck. Mm. And when I woke up, there was a dark figure with his hands around my neck. Holy shit. Dude. And I was trying to talk and I couldn't speak. And then I just remember like closing my eyes and like praying. And then like within a few minutes, it like ended. Wow. And I like didn't sleep the rest of the night. Yeah. It was like really weird. But I also, like you were saying, like I was familiar with sleep paralysis and how like that's a common experience, like not being able to move. Like I couldn't, I couldn't move my legs or my arms. It felt like I was pinned down by something. Right. But I was like, okay, I know that that's, so I was trying to like reason through it, but yeah. kind of weird. Yeah. 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 So dude. how does sleep Fucking. paralysis, we're okay. really getting derailed. No, derailed. This is, we can't derail if we never started. <laughs> I guess that's true. No. Okay. So sleep paralysis cat is there are two, uh, chemicals that in neurotypical people will uh, act in balance to get you asleep and to keep you asleep. Um, I, I don't know the name of them. I just know how they work. So one keeps your body from like it keeps your your muscles from firing while you're having dreams. So people who don't get enough of this chemical, this is why people sleepwalk is because mm -hmm. their mind is asleep, oh. but their body like their muscles continue firing and there's enough electricity in the whole musculature that your body will start acting out what your brain is playing for you in a dream. That happens to me. Right. Mm. So the other chemical is the one that keeps your brain asleep. So what happens in sleep paralysis is you still have enough of the chemical active that immobilizes your body during sleep, but the chemical that keeps your brain asleep dips down to a point where you regain consciousness and come out of your REM. So you're having a conscious, you're like, you're conscious, but like 
the the chemical has is still like still has a grip on your body enough so that like you can have a conscious thought open my eyelids and be like i'm awake i'm gonna get up your brain won't let it happen so you can't move your legs your arms you're like paralyzed it's weird so the so sleep paralysis essentially the 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 working theory among uh psychologists for like sleep paralysis and like shadowy figure Mm -hmm. uh, experience during that is as soon as your brain realizes you are in like the most vulnerable state you can be (laughs) in that you can experience pain but you cannot do anything to defend yourself from it your brain will play for you basically your worst fears or like fill in a, a mental map of what the room would be but give you an image of like a a menacing threat because basically mm-hmm. your brain is like in a in a state of like oh fuck we are exposed and hmm. so that or maybe it's is it trying to like make sense of why you can't move and it's like imagining exactly like, like holding you down right yeah, or even yeah, or even like, like okay as a kid you've experienced like another kid like giving you a typewriter, right? Like sitting on you and like like poking your chest and tickling you, or even a parent just like giving you a big bear hug and you can't move. Your body has experienced immobilization uh inflicted on you by another person. So if it just happens to your if if your brain is the only thing that's keeping you immobilized, past experience might say like it must be because like another body of some sort is sitting on me or sitting on my chest or mm-hmm. sitting on my throat or you know, anything like that. Wow. It's wild. Wow, that's wild. It's wild. I, I'm not sure if that explains every case. And that's that's the freakiest part to me is like, right. what the fuck is happening if that's not the yeah. only explanation? And that's like my worst fear. <laughs> that happening? That's like, I actually had, I have like really detailed sort of intense dreams mm. and i always have and i was kind of like plagued by nightmares as a little kid oh, and yeah. like was sort of an insomniac because i just i had like horrific terrifying nightmares all the time mm. i would like sleep with the light on in my dad's room and he was such a nice man he would just like deal with that <laughs> like have the lights on and i was like right I yeah i can't be alone anyway um and i still have really intense dreams and, like last night i had one where i was i was in this really cool like craftsman style like 1920s home and i wanted to like enjoy it but i like couldn't because the dream went got really scary (laughs) (laughs) oh no but like it was one of those things where uh i wasn't quite immobilized in the dream but like it started where like nothing i couldn't turn anything on Mm -hmm. and every room i went into i realized like i've been trying to turn this light on for like a minute and i can't get the light to come on and and you know, like when you, when just like slowly one by one and then you can't talk and like, and then you can't move. And then I was in a, in the dream, I was stuck in a bed and I couldn't move. Oh. And. You were dreaming about having sleep paralysis. Sort of. Whoa. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> and, and then I woke up and I was like, okay, this is, that's not real and that's not happening, whatever. But, um, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of, it's freaky. And I had a friend, my good friend, Alicia experienced sleep paralysis for the first time this last year and it only it like plagued her for like a week and she had never experienced it before and i don't think she's ever she's experienced it since but there was like a week where like multiple nights in a row she had experienced very similar to what you guys just described where like 
she would her brain would turn on she couldn't move her body and there was this like she described it she said it felt evil like mm-hmm. this this shadowy black like figure yeah. yep. at the edge of her bed yep. that she th- said felt really threatening yeah i mean she even she like reached out and talked to someone and was like what yeah the fuck <laughs> yeah no and that's <laughs> why like on? after my experience like i said like i was familiar with that and that's why like there's the joke about like me and my sleep paralysis demon like because it's like such a common thing yeah but, you know definitely definitely felt evil when it happened right right yeah so you're like part of me wonders yeah. if there is something to do with like i don't know almost if it's like genetic coding uh because i like with my experience especially the uh the image of like a very tall creature kind of like unnaturally arching above yeah. you know part of me wonders if there's some something to like the idea of genetic memory or like super ancient genetic memory where human ancestors throughout the the eras would would experience like attackers in the night or something maybe there there's a fire in a cave and the shadow cast is causing this unnaturally bent like super tall weirdly figured right shadow on the wall as mm-hmm. soon as you wake up right and that dose of fear is like is strong enough in our species to somehow ripple out into future generations well then you never know how like those genes are expressed like i'm just exactly you know i i was out house setting maybe me going out you know at midnight to go feed the pigs something happened that made me uneasy and that released a chemical that had an epigenetic effect that then you know some hidden gene was activated um, activated and it produced a chemical that then caused me to have a restless night like yeah mm. there's a lot of weird stuff that happens you know just biologically absolutely wow hmm. very Which, very pre-rational this, is, this pre-rational but this is going to be an incredible segment absolutely it is about. i saw this coming from a mile away <laughs> because tonight uh, last week we were we're going to talk about nature of man tonight yeah and and my my goal was to learn about thomas hobbs yes but one of his big things was trying to look at the divine and angels and demons and spirituality and find a way to understand and explain it in scientific and mathematical ways. Yeah. Which is kind of what we just did, right? Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> that's good. That's true, huh? That's, that's solid work, Tarna. Well done. So we have ourselves a nice, I <laughs> uh, say about 40 minutes to to go over a little bit of some nature of man. Give us some Hobbes 101 then. Do you want me, do you want you, me to give you, you some You brought Hobbes? us to Hobbes. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Thomas Hobbes. Good man. <laughs> <laughs> no, super, super interesting man. You know, considering how interested I am and in, in invested, I would say I am in politics. The fact that I hadn't paid attention to Hobbes is crazy because he's like the first political scientist almost. Mm. And what he did is it's pretty interesting. But um, he was born 1588. He died 1679, 91 years old. An impressive feat. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I also read that the, the uh, average, not the average, but yeah, maybe it was the average. The average life expectancy for a man in 1588 was like 37 or something and then and then like you were lucky if you made it to 60 so kind of he kind of hit it out of the park yeah woof yeah (laughs) 
But uh, Hobbes had a lot of interesting thoughts on social contracts and how government should be and everything like that. And I think that could be a very good topic for next week. But I think we want to talk specifically about some of these um, philosophers' perception of man and whether or not at their root they are good or they are evil. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook.com slash WhiskeyBenchPod for Android users. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. Hobbes, you know, definitely didn't perceive mankind as, um, in quote, good. Um, But that's also a little bit in conflict of his perception of morality. But basically his thought was that men, when left to themselves, would descend into what he would say in quote, a war of all against all. Mm -hmm. And that is left to your own devices, kind of from a neo-Darwinistic perspective. You are only looking out for yourself and then the logical conclusion to that is that everybody will be fighting each other. Violence, everything like that. And that goes a little bit into, you know, not being able to trust people and people are selfish and everything like that. Um, but trying to understand Hobbes this last week, I found it a little difficult because of her perception of morality. And I think this is good before I go any deeper. He defines good simply as that which people desire and evil as that which they avoid, at least in the state of nature. So he believed that morality was strictly subjective, which I do not agree with. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And so the example that I saw reading was, um, for example, hope is the prospect of attaining some apparent good. Whereas fear is the recognition that some apparent good may not be attainable. Hobbes admits, however, that this definition is only tenable as long as we consider men outside of the constraints of law and society. So basically, like the natural state of man and the morality, good or evil, does not exist, and it's only like dependent upon an individual's in quotes appetite um and desires mm. Mm. which really kind of gets to a a very primal animalistic neo-darwinistic perspective of man when you kind of reduce him to nothing but creature which is how i feel Hobbes is is viewing it. And then his understanding of mankind then led him into seeing that, you know, war of all against all is a big issue, but he also believed that we were very rational creatures. And so by forming government, it was kind of like a hack, and that was the only way to prevent kind of this this never-ending violence. That's the summary I have right now. 
of of Hobbs, like the three minute summary. It's man, that's a that's a good summary. You get you sent us a text that you were like loving where you think Leviathan is going to head because you haven't read the yeah. you haven't read that work, but you intend to now because of your cursory study. Correct? Yes, and and I want to hear the the brief like um summary of of your philosophers, but I do want to say that even though there's quite a bit that I disagree with on Hobbes. Yeah. You had texted and you said that you weren't a fan because he was so bleak. Yeah, dude. And as I've been as I've been reading excerpts and seeing bits and pieces of his quotes and other books that he's written, I actually had a completely different experience. I feel like he really is not that negative and I didn't feel down even reading some of the heavier excerpts. Mm, okay. You, you know, I feel like he was he's definitely not a cynic. Um he seems more like maybe a skeptic um, trying to make sense of everything. But I feel like his pursuit of man as a rational being was really surprisingly optimistic in that he's like, here's what I see in mankind unchecked. But because we're rational, here are all these great things that we can do. And then also looking at it, like he believed that like the, the sovereign, which is his Leviathan, like he was pretty progressive in thinking that, you know, anyone that wasn't able to work should be taken care of. Huh. He's like the, the lame, the limp, the incapable, like those people in your society should be taken care of and they're valuable. And he believed that all men, all men like were equal in whatever, like he believed that each person had different skills, but it wasn't strictly neo-Darwinistic. He didn't believe like the strongest man was always going to win. He's like, you could have a strong man that could be beat out by the weak, cunning man. Right. And so he perceived every man as, as an equal. And he even included people with disabilities and everything like that, which for, you know, 1600s, he was actually pretty, pretty it's, at least from what I've seen so far, he seemed pretty, uh, yeah, pretty optimistic of, of man. And, and but would, would he only say that he's optimistic because... I mean, because he was born into a social contract that had already upheld those types of behaviors as virtues. Uh, I I don't know if he would say that. I'm I'm not entirely well, sure. Because it, um, it sounds like to me, like in my in my cursory reading of him, at this point, you have quite honestly done yeah. more research than I have, so I'm willing to defer to what you know. But like, even the the quote he's famous for, which is. There's only continual fear and death and danger of violent death. And the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Like I read, I read that and maybe I just need to give him more credit and, and really dig in like you have and, and get into it. But like that base assumption of that's how man acts. And it's only the social contract and what he would call the Leviathan, right? Like some sort of ruling. Yes. Governance. It's only that that keeps us like from tipping over the brink to all out war destruction types, right? Well, think about the 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 context from which he's writing in, right? Mm, like, yes. And that's that was very a time when, when you were outside of the, that society, whether it was a feudal system or or, you know, a kingdom or even before that in like ancient Rome, when you were outside of that life fucking was short, brutish and hard. Sure. Right? Cause you were literally like you were left to the wilds and you were one of the beasts. Um, so I think 
I don't know. I think that's actually probably a pretty fair assessment. Yeah. So unless you're under the protection of the, the crown, like if you're outside the city walls, then you can expect nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah. Right. I mean, even within, but like particularly out. Because there was, you know, there, people were limited in their ability to to take care of themselves outside of that system, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we were just more vulnerable sure. because we hadn't created all of the the comforts of modern life to protect ourselves from sort of a wild world. Right. And, you know, he was born very poor, which, you know, <laughs> in in 1588, uh, most of the world was, right? And I think when he was four, he was abandoned by his father, who was like a a, he was a priest and a drunkard. He got kicked out of the church and excommunicated. And so his father had to flee for his life. And then later on, he was kind of adopted into a very well-off family, which is where he got his education and stuff like that. But as he pursued the sciences and mathematics, and like I had mentioned earlier, really found a passion for trying to understand spirituality god in a material sense in a scientific sense i was reading some people think that he was the first modern materialist huh he he was labeled an atheist by the church um not like in a traditional sense but that he didn't subscribe to the catholic church's view of god and and one of his big thing was like if god is omnipresent then then he must be made of matter like he must be a physical being and so he was exploring that and trying to understand that. Huh. And there's arguments that maybe he was, you know, in quote, you know, Christian or a theist because he had to be, right? But that put a lot of stress on him. You know, he was good friends with uh, Galileo and some of those people, which, you know, didn't have a good run in with the church. So there was a lot of danger in his life just in his writings and his research and everything like that. Um, he went to Oxford. He fled Europe later in his life during the British Civil War because of his teachings. And Oxford actually took all of his research and burnt it in front of the school. Wow. <laughs> yeah, because they're like, this guy's messed up. Um, but huh. as I was reading about the British Civil War, some of the darkness that you see in his writing, I think, is um, definitely part to do with just the world that was around him at the time. Sure, yeah. Um, as I was reading, a lot of people were saying, I mean, it's it, it was civil unrest like nothing that anyone could even remotely understand. Apparently, during British Civil War, that, that period of time, which was, I want to say it was like 1620 to 1660 or something like that, they were saying that like there was wars between every group, between the sexes, between men and women, and, and racial tension, and wars between different races. And Religious sex. Everything, like everyone, was fighting each other because of their differences. Huh. Like, and and seeing some of the stories and the accounts, like anything that you think is going on in the United States, like doesn't even it's just a drop compared to what was going on in that time in the world. Which I, you know, I I haven't really been aware of, but it was wild. Mm. And he had to flee, and he went to Paris because it was like, oh, I'll die because of my writings that are floating around. So I think there's definitely there's understanding in in why he wrote it. And he wrote Leviathan um, in Paris after he had fled. So he had seen 
all of this destruction and division. And so he decided to write Leviathan to incorporate his understandings of and love of mathematics into finding a solution for what was political unrest. So he wrote Leviathan to try and understand psychologically what men are thinking, and then also trying to find a solution to, in a very hopeful way, offer future government that would lead to peace. So I think there was actually, I think he's misunderstood. I think there's a lot of hope in his writing, even though he's kind of brutally honest. Interesting. Yeah. I think I'm... How did he incorporate mathematics? I don't know yet. I need to read Leviathan, but he, he fell in love with Euclidean geometry. So the way that I heard, I heard a quote, and it was like, it was a beautiful blend of him using Euclidean geometry to try and describe divinity or something and i was like oh pretty cool interesting okay i think i'm still misunderstanding him because i i hear his story like hearing his philosophies colored by his story it's fascinating to me that you can experience so much like uh, like it sounds like a lot of institutional ire coming from people who didn't like what he had to say Mm mm-hmm and but it, it inherently those institutions were social contracts but like as far as far as i still understand his philosophy it's the social contract that is the only thing that elevates us from war against all but now we just have like factions against all or faction against faction which doesn't seem to mm-hmm. make things b- better no and that's why he he wrote about the leviathan and and trying to you know, theorize, okay, what would have to be implemented to make sure that these little factions didn't start fighting these, these tribal, these small tribal conflicts. Right. So he's looking for a universal sovereign power or. Um, I don't know if he went into, you know, what we would consider like globalism today. Yeah. I'm assuming that it would be like the, you know, the mother country of England, right? Like they could have a, a sovereignty. Sure. I I see I see turtles all the way down though. Like once you if you if, even if you just have two sovereign powers on the globe, the the competition inspired still creates the war and still creates the the strife based on the competing interests of them though. Right. You know? Right. No, I a hundred percent agree with that. I guess that's and, why you know, I don't why I'm unconvinced that a social contract in his paradigm is solving anything because like if a social contract is meant to elevate man into some sort of virtuous cooperation it mm-hmm. se- it seems to me like it fails all the way up and all the way down you know and right. I right and and I agree with that I, I don't believe in 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 quote the leviathan sure. right You'd be a bad libertarian um, if you did. It's similar. It's it's <laughs> yeah. similar to what would be, I guess, like a benevolent dictator. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> and, and it kind of echoes some of Sir Thomas More's Utopia, his book that Definitely, he wrote. Yeah, and it was the idea of a utopia, but not like a, a Marxian um, utopia. It was like a 
you have to read it. It's well, it's, Utopia was satire, wasn't it? It was, but yeah. like there was it was satire and serious, and it was like basically if you had a benevolent leader and everyone was perfect, like Utopia would happen. It could work, right? right. And yeah. so that's kind of how I feel like the shift is with the Leviathan, mm, right? Okay, does like he, you'd does, have to be benevolent. Does he argue basically then for? So if he thinks that man left to his own devices is yeah. in a constant state of war and therefore you need to have some kind of social contract yeah. where you're under a rule of law to maintain order. However, he witnessed that completely fall apart with the English Civil War. Yeah. Did when he retreated to Paris to write Leviathan, did he come to the conclusion that basically the Leviathan or the government needed more power and like more mm, yeah. absolute authority? Yes. Is that what he argues for? That was his idea. It was basically mm. like the people get to decide who the the Leviathan is, right? That was one of the things. He's like the people need to agree to like having this Leviathan. Man, that's But then that, it's but then it's that Leviathan. But or did he did he come up with a system for like But then it's that Leviathan. There's no checks right? and balances yeah. in his no. system. No, it's there's, one there's, it's there's a not checks and balances, right? Like but I don't think he wasn't even though I think he was in favor of of something like a monarchy, he did not believe in like the divine, right. divine right of know. kings or something. Okay, yeah, divine right of kings. He didn't believe See, in that. Even right? that yeah. is so. But he also he was really hard on capital punishment. His thing was like, you enter into this society right. and agree that the Leviathan has the ability to control everything, right. and it's in the Leviathan's interest to make sure his people are happy. Right. That that's the his theory. Uh-huh. The theory. Right. Uh-huh. And then anyone that diverges from that needs to be dealt with. Like killed? Uh, well, I know he was for <laughs> capital punishment, right? But like, you can't be a part of the society if you don't want to follow by the rules. But you get to choose. Man, and to okay. Follow so, the rules. But I don't think he was an authoritarian because it wasn't that all things are permissible. It was that anything is permissible via the Leviathan. Well, so like. Whoever was leading would get to decide what was permissible, right? And the result could be authoritarian, but I don't think he was for authoritarian. Okay. Okay, so he's he's allowing Leviathan to dictate the morals of the social contract that it is placed above. Well, yes, that is true. And that's where his he's like the the only way that morality is implemented is via like what the leader puts into place. As that's so him. hard for me to hear too. Like pairing, pairing, well, pairing saying, this. I believe pairing that, this with the fact that he truly believes somehow that all men are rational, and yet they need like a single sovereign leviathan just yeah. to like tell them the rules. I, that yeah, feels like it cheapens his belief in rationality. If he's like fucking, that's, you can't fair, do anything without a, a king. <laughs> right. Right. Hobbes right. believes that moral judgment about good and evil cannot exist until they are decreed by a society's central authority. Okay. This position leads directly to Hobbes' belief in the autocratic and absolutist form of government. Yeah. Damn. So do like communists invoke him and in his writings? If they don't, they don't probably know. should. Was, but I don't <laughs> think so strong. because he was also he also <laughs> was really, really for like in a society like you're trading your freedoms for protection and like, but part of that protection is like you should, he was deeply capitalistic and he believed in enterprise and trading and success and wealth. So it's like this weird, that's, this is why I want to read his book. Did he believe in property? 
Yeah. Okay. And that's why I don't, I want to read the book because I've only yeah. seen little bits of it and listened to commentary on it. And so now I need to see what he actually right. was saying. Yeah. Because I heard it's, I mean, I've heard multiple, now I've listened to like six or seven podcasts on him and almost every single podcast said it's like one of the most profound and well-written pieces of like political literature ever. Yeah. Written. It's definitely like foundational work. And, I, and I'm like, yeah. how did I not read this? I need to For sure. This. Yeah. So I'm actually kind of stoked on Hobbes, even though I, I really <laughs> actually pretty much everything I don't really agree with. But like, I'm stoked <laughs> <Okay>. on Hobbes. <laughs> I'm glad you're stoked. I, I assigned him to you last week because my, my rudimentary understanding of him was that man would war and is basically evil in the mm-hmm. state of nature. And that's what we've. We're not even really going to get to talk about our own personal thoughts because I, I actually do still think that man is okay. Let's, evil, let's, but... let's get okay. <laughs> let, I, I think no. realistically we're going to have to we're going to have a couple episodes on this. I think so. And I'd actually I would like to take a deeper dive to be able to match Torna's understanding of his. Oh yeah, character. I, I <laughs> did not have nearly well, as I much. I didn't dive deep. I enough. basically had enough yeah. Rousseau quotes to back up my own opinions. Is what I had in my right, research. Okay. Well, well. <laughs> do we want to? Because I haven't even gotten into like the whole social contract stuff yet. But do we want to shift? Just just stay on I'm I'm enjoying this. Uh, one one thing before yeah. you shift, Torna, is the the thing yeah. that I another thing that I'm grappling with is. Yes, the social contract is beneficial. So, like, take it back all the way to the feudal system of Middle Ages England, right? We have castles with kings, castles with walls. And if you want the protection of the walls and want the protection of the king's army, you pay him taxes, right? And enter into that social contract to get behind the wall. And it sounds as if Hobbes' argument is essentially that if you're outside the wall, you're kind of fucked because the state of nature, like, without... Mm -hmm entering into such a fancy social contract you're going to just experience war death and destruction nasty brutish and short what yes. i mm-hmm. what i what i think though is that it's still like what i know of of feudal england is that the some of the worst atrocities inflicted on the like the peasantry outside the walls were more often perpetrated by the kingdoms themselves and not just by like roving bands of like other unprotected uncrowned people you know like i think well right right and it's true and that and that's going to reflect more into probably what you're going to talk about right and that's the absolute power corrupts absolutely no hitting but um you know well i'm just saying i think there's like the, the the robin hood myth is compelling and, and famous because it I I think it probably highlights more reality than fiction in that like robbing from the rich to to like feed the poor or whatever like he he was re- like the Robin Hood figure the character is rebelling against kingdoms mm-hmm. and rebelling against like other like kingdoms and social contracts that work against the interest of people even in their surrounding area because all they care about is inside the wall you know so as long as the people inside the wall are fed like why should we care about the people out right exactly and that's where then going on a larger scale it starts to break down right because okay yeah maybe it makes sense to have some leviathan for england and the leviathan for france and a leviathan for 
the United States. But then, like you said, once those people interact, then is it just Leviathans against all Leviathans, right? It just keeps scaling up until you have one supreme global leader. I think that's the inevitable outcome of the thought experiment, at least. Yes, and and with with Hobbes and his his writings concerning um, mankind, it, you know, he didn't trust that they were capable of managing themselves. I mm-hmm. guess, mm-hmm. and and again, I, it doesn't make sense to me that then you would put one of those same men in a position that then dictates how people are not going to be at war with each other. Right. Right. Have so, you watched Game you of know, Thrones? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I have not, but, I, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, I get it. Um, but yeah, so peace is achieved when we do what we are told is kind of his, whoa, his whole whoa. thing. And, and that is so fundamentally against truly what I believe. Like, I think the worst thing that could possibly happen is like people just doing that what feels so anti liberty. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm excited to talk about Locke next week because damn, like, <laughs> like, right. There's and a reason so, Hobbes and Locke are always pitted against each other in philosophical arenas. <laughs> yeah, well, although I will say from the little teeny tiny bit, I understand of the two of them. It seems like Locke sort of built upon Hobbes's work, although he never I read today that he never referenced Hobbes, but he referenced mm. other writers of Hobbes's time that were similar. Mm-hmm. But but basically the some of the the basic ideas I feel like he kind of started with those and then expanded and kind of evolved them. Yeah. So there's some like overlap. Yeah. Well, I'm sure there is with with social contracts and things like that. Right. But enough talking about Hobbes, let's talk about me. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> so understanding uh, cuz I do want to kind of dive into what I perceived of Hobbes and my understanding of man is inherently evil and then where it diverges from Hobbes. And so, yes, I do think that man is inherently evil. And I do believe that we are rational. But I think through our rationality, part of that is, well, part of that rationality is that we are capable of working past what is like all against all and that's just because i mean again I, last week i had mentioned that there are some like neo-darwinistic evolutionary arguments that can be tied into this and it's true like you can look and see that cooperation is a very good thing for for humans and so i think through our rationality we can come to the conclusion that cooperation and peace and all of these things that we have created, all of these social constructs or social contracts, all of these things that we have truly thought of and made and created are through rationality. But we don't need some leader to control our, I guess, primitive instincts. I think rationality is what controls that. Hmm. Uh, we got to go back all the way to... Like Hobbes was defining good and evil based on essentially selfish interest. I mean, care to discuss what what 
what basis of morality are you judging man is evil as a baseline? I just go to the yeah. roots of, of yeah. Let's just let's define things that have been, been struggled right. to define for the last thousand right, right. years. Yeah, like <laughs> sure, sure. But the morality that would be attributed to Judeo-Christian, okay, values, yeah, right. I tend to believe. I don't tend to believe. I believe that those things, the the you know, if you want to go really simple, the Ten Commandments, right? Those things are something that are objective moral truths that are kind of embedded into human nature like there's a there's a deep you could i don't know maybe even biological understanding of bad things happen when you do these things there are negative effects to murdering people to you know you stealing. stealing all these adultery. things right adultery yeah. There are serious, negative, biological things that happen if, if any of those are broken, right? Is that learned behavior, though? Sort of like the, the genetic sleep paralysis theory you guys were floating earlier? Um, maybe it's learned behavior, but, but I don't know. Say tomorrow all of that was unlearned. But I it isn't. It couldn't be because we have centuries of experience, right, of knowing and that's why it's so deeply ingrained because it's been because our ancestors have lived and learned these experiences mm-hmm. and it's just that's how it becomes innate. Sure. But you can look at other species that have warring tendencies and territorial disputes and, you know, birds that steal stuff from other birds. Like some of those same principles apply to other areas of, in quote, lesser species, right? Mm-hmm. Just because we have rationality and we've perceived all these things and we have all these social constructs and we have these complex systems that we understand, like we still see at a very primal animalistic base that that holds true throughout the animal kingdom in different ways. So I do think that like it's kind of ingrained into existence. Like you said it's not possible, but if we were to forget everything, I think we would get back into tribal groups, families, whatever. And if someone came into your tribe and stole something from you, there would be negative consequences. Because mm. I think it's, it's, it's deeply animalistic. To steal or the negative? The negative, like consequences to but does the, does the well, bird that why? steals from the nest of another bird feel guilt for it? Like, well, no, but that's also why I think man is particularly unique. Like yeah, but where where does where does the sense that you shouldn't kill people? <laughs> where does that sense come from that that is like that that is bad? Are we just saying it was handed to us by divinity at some point, or is that I'm I'm kind of with cat here. I, I mean, may, maybe maybe that is it. But let's go back to the animal kingdom. Like, you have one animal, or let's just say a tribe of animals, and a, another tribe comes in and steals something, and runs off with it. The tribe that was just in quote wronged, then goes after what was taken from them, and kills a member of that of that group 
in in the you know neo darwinistic sense that's just evolution happening there's no no tragedy but now if you translate this into the human experience like our understanding is the whole like there's value in the animal that was killed but the whole thing could have been avoided backing up by like you know not right stealing. so it was so can I just say that there's that for any of this to matter yeah. for that to matter that somebody took something from somebody sure. else there's this Sense there's this ownership. understanding of yeah. property right yeah. and I think that it does exist even in in the animal kingdom mm-hmm. you know like baboons war with each other and they basically they'll take females from other baboon tribes sure as like trophies and you know yeah so but so there is this like i think what maybe is innate is this idea of property and of ownership mm-hmm. yeah which is kind of interesting yes as a libertarian yeah. <laughs> to observe that uh, capitalism <laughs> <laughs> but Henning, what were you starting to Where does to the say? sense of property come from to to like a human a human being that's born with nothing and that will always die with nothing? Where I like what what teaches us that we that's can question. possess anything and call it mine? Like with a capital M, this microphone is mine. What a, what wow. on earth gives me the sense I that actually, that is true? I actually need to think about that because I just actually don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a totally fair question. Um, we'll dive into Locke more in another episode, but mm-hmm. Locke's idea was that um, that basically property is the result of your labor. So if you've mm. taken if you've taken resources from the earth and created oh, something yeah. from it. That thing you created. Okay, is so yours. if you pick up a rock mm-hmm. because you put in the labor to like bend your hips, bend your back, literally grasp that, your yeah. fingers around yeah. the rock, and it's then my if rock. you, that's your rock. Okay, then. and then if you chisel that rock into a spearhead, then that's your fucking right. spearhead. Um, <laughs> and then and then and your labor itself is well is yours, and any. Uh, coercive like taking of your labor mm-hmm. like involuntarily coercive uh is theft but isn't it just their labor to is, lift mm. the rock if you set it down like if you if you possess it you know like my my microphone is first comes first my, serve, I my, guess. Ina- <laughs> my microphone is inactive the vast majority of the time and if somebody came and took it like what gives me the sense of i've been stolen from if like you know, I wasn't using it and like they went through labor to get into my house. I don't know. I'm really playing with okay, words so, here. <laughs> Mostly devil's advocate. No, but I know like, what you're saying. How far but, does it go? Now this ties into Hobbes like war against Tr- all, right? True. Because I do think that, that in a strictly neo-Darwinistic view of the world, that is absolutely true. Because in a, in a, in a neo-Darwinistic world there cannot and will not ever be any morals and that will result in wars against all versus all because it's true if it, if it really is just your fitness that matters you reproducing you living like i can take whatever i want 
whenever I want. There's nothing anything. There's nothing that anyone can do about it. And no one can say yay or nay to it, right? It's it's unless there's a almighty Leviathan that can be the arbitrator arbitrator of what's right. Well, and wrong. this is in, in or, modern senses, but just yeah, strictly. Or an agreed upon trade. Without any government or trade or anything like that. Like there there can't be any morals because it's sure. just me. Mm. All that matters is my existence. Numero uno. Yeah. So it's like, I want your microphone pinning so I can just kill right. you for it. And that's not good. That's not bad. It's just evolution. And yet we have a sense that mm. that is bad. Right. And I, I guess my, my, my fundamental belief is that the sense that that is bad pre-exists entering a social contract that would dare to tell you that it is bad. And that's that's what I was arguing. Maybe, poorly. oh, okay. Like there, that sense of of right and wrong, like that is something that is inherently. I mean, you could oh. go so far as like it is woven so we, into the existence. So we agree. Of man. You you agree? Like human beings pre. I mean, like I know state of nature is a very squishy topic because like Rousseau right. pretty compellingly argues that the state of nature has never and would never exist. Like you're always like a social compact exists when like when when a, a mating human couple pair bonds and creates another person like just just the fact mm-hmm. that they like pair bond is a social contract so you can't you can't live in a state of nature like solo i guess so it's it's a very it's a mm. it's a very weird thought experiment experiment to begin with oh gosh i derailed myself where was i going with that damn it <laughs> That 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 understanding of right and wrong is innate and presupposes a social yeah, contract. Right. Right. So so we agree, Torna, but you think it's 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 the easier path for mankind to follow the evil instincts, even knowing against like knowing there's a standard somehow. Yes. So I believe that even though man knows is inherently evil, they know what is that like goodness, right? They are aware of what that goodness is, but it is far easier left to their own devices to pursue the negative because I think that is a very animalistic, neo-Darwinistic Okay, so it's easier to pursue short-term pleasure that is often interpreted as evil or felt as evil than than uh, rationally project like future greater benefit by doing good in the same moment, Mm -hmm. or like, man, I I hear what you're saying, but like. I I still like here's like why why do you lie like why do people lie why do people lie when there's no reason to lie mental illness seems like a cop out that seems like the cop out of the (laughs) century (laughs) well some people are compulsive liars true right it is a compulsive thing not compulsive people people will tell little lies when there's literally no reason to lie about it oh okay why do you think they do that I think because people are evil, like because your your default is to 
let these little things slip. These little no no. Well, there's. I think. I well. I would argue that it's wrong. I don't know. Sure, but let's just say it is wrong. Yeah. I don't know if people are are motivated to tell white lies or big lies because it's because they're inherently evil. I think they're driven, all humans are driven by self-interest. And so for them in that moment, Mm -hmm. telling that falsehood is going to bring them a greater benefit than telling the truth. So there's about, they're placing a higher value on the lie than on the truth. Fair enough. And so it's not necessarily that they're evil, it's that they're being pragmatic. Whether that's, it can be wrong still. It can still be a wrong thing to do to mislead someone. But I don't know if it's driven by by being evil. I think it's more likely driven by somebody determining, like, me saying this right now will help me. But if I, but I, the way I perceive it is that, like, it takes effort to be truthful. It takes effort to for everyone to keep your word. You know, sure. if if the default was that man was inherently good, it would be difficult to tell a lie. It would be difficult to not keep okay 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 i think i see where our difference is torna is i think i think man is inherently good and that it would not be difficult but for the social contract that teaches us competition that teaches us the definition you are a communist <laughs> <laughs> Just seeing the look of horror come across my face. (laughs) Oh man, that's so funny. (laughs) I love you, Henning. I just (laughs) that was unexpected. That was unexpected. Is what it was. What I'm hearing Torna say is that, well, what I'm observing is that your understanding of man really closely parallels or mirrors sort of the creation story in Adam and Eve and the idea that like we've fallen from grace. Sure. Yeah. We know better, but we're choosing to do wrong. Yeah. And I would say that that's that, just an observation. Yeah. Right. No yeah. About it, but, yeah. No, that's true. Yeah. Accurate. But there was, there was existence before the fall in that narrative that gives us a, a vision for mankind in the state of nature that like where no evil existed somehow. Right. And that's why that's why we can understand the good and there's kind of a inherent goodness. <laughs> an inherent, you know, perception of what that is like, but it takes more effort to achieve it than not. Okay. I still don't think we disagree on that. I'm just I'm just saying that I I have uh, evidence is a really weird word for it, but I I I have a couple <laughs> I have a pair of chapters in Genesis that have a whole existence before the fall. Right? Mm-hmm. That to me teach me some form of like inherent human dignity and goodness that pre-existed our knowledge of good and evil. Well, don't you agree with that, Torna? Isn't that sort of what you've said? Yeah, I, I guess I'm just, just, it, even if man is, you know, 
left to their own devices, evil doesn't mean that they can't also have that deep-rooted understanding and perception of what good is. Maybe we're going in circles now. <laughs> this is so... I'm just reeling from being called a communist is what I... <laughs> I'm sorry. (laughs) But the idea that competition corrupts is insane, but okay. Okay, and okay. (laughs) A a common common critique of Rousseau is that he is innocently naive to the state of nature. (laughs) And I think I would would hear it in love if you told me the exact same thing right now. And maybe that's all you're saying, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is yeah i would say that communists are naive i don't think you're a communist for the record henning is not a communist <laughs> he is I my know, friend i'm not i'm not, not a communist <laughs> just wait just wait just wait until a couple years when that has really seeped in and then i i am <laughs> yeah there you go that is that to be honest though that is something i struggle with because like if i'm gonna say it in such such blatant terms i think the i think the state of okay let's keep using adam and eve if we're just going to presuppose that this is a story we can all like find common ground on like there the the inherent sure. goodness and blessedness of a, a garden of eden pre knowledge of good and evil pre like eating the fruit right taking the bait well that's that's a mischaracterization i don't think it was taking the bait actually i think uh just like rousseau and I, I can go into this a lot more in a future episode, but Rousseau essentially says that man is only in a primitive and innocent state of being preceding socialization, and it and thus it's devoid of pride, envy, and even fear of others. So like there's this like peaceful, neutral, morally neutral, and naive innocence in which mainly solitary individuals act according to their basic urges as well as their natural desire for self-preservation, though this latter instinct is tempered by an equally natural sense of compassion and cooperation. So that's, that's, that is kind of where I'm coming from. And while I think it's necessary to enter a social contract or to put it in this language, like Mm -hmm. it's necessary to learn the knowledge of good and evil. I think it is the knowledge of good and evil like we we wouldn't know what evil is unless it was defined for us and social contracts define it for us and once we know what we shouldn't do so social contracts i think we do agree on this social contracts were just man's creation or i guess articulation articulation of something that was there before the contract existed they were just working out you know you could even go back far back as like Maybe what was talked about in oral tradition, and once it you could actually put it into practice, like this is stuff that was inherent to man, they understood it, they knew it, and over a period of time, these social contracts are just the articulation of sure what was already there, yeah, yeah, okay right so here here's a here's actually a quote from. Rousseau's social contract book that I recently finished the society is bound to change men and if it does not do what it is meant to do in in improving them it will inevitably worsen them so like I I think the social contract is necessary I'm presupposing a naive innocence before such knowledge of good and evil is injected 
but like I, I, I guess the root of what of what we're talking about is do like were we good before or were like we are we good in that state of nature or are we Hobbes's war against all like Adam and Eve did not kill each other they cooperated in a very uh, mutually beneficial way because their self interest was tempered well, by I their. I know con- a couple people related to Adam and Eve that killed After each other. <laughs> the social contract showed up, is what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, and the competition created between them in making offerings of the fruits of their labors created jealousy. Mm, it inspired jealousy only because the competition was introduced following the social contract. Mic drop. (laughs) But only one of them, only one of them perceived it as competition. Well, and I would just like to say that competition's unavoidable because we live in a world of scarce resources and I'm reading Thomas Sowell. And Kat, Kat, we do agree. We do agree on that. I think think that is the world in which we live in. And Torna, yes, I do agree. Only one viewed the competition as a competition. But right. that's also kind of my point. If you're fueled by competition when your quote unquote opponent does not see it that way, like Abel yeah. was still somehow living into his inherent goodness, whether naively or not, he was giving the first fruits of his crop. God saw it as mm-hmm. pleasing, whereas Cain uh like felt the the effects of being judged as a second tier gift giver. And instead of being mad at the person or the God that rejected the gift, he got mad at the person who bested him. So it was the, it was the social contract and the knowledge of good and evil that taught him that jealousy. I still fall into the camp that I think that's innate within us. Yeah. I don't know if it taught him that instinct. Cause that's the animalistic, isn't it? Wouldn't you argue that that's something we can observe in jealousy? Like you think jealousy most is other creatures? Uh, maybe actually, not jealousy necessarily sure in, in, some the, animals, in the modern Hitler well in like our human context but the idea of observing what another creature has and wanting it okay right I think you can observe that but, in other animals not all so we're, we're defining Cain's but... actions as animalistic is that what we're saying first of all I would yeah I okay would, yeah. but that that is defining animalistic actions like giving that a moral definition of good and evil based on our but own this is a time at definitions of such good and evil. Right. But basing it just on the story of Cain and Abel, right? They had the knowledge of good and evil uh, at that point, and Cain decided to take the animalistic route, even though he had that right, knowledge. Right, which is which is what I'm saying already. and which what Rousseau says. Like society will change men, and if it's not gonna do what it's meant to do in improving them, it will worsen them. Yeah, okay, I can follow that. <laughs> so I'm a communist. And <laughs> but also the social... <laughs> Sorry. But the social contract in the society and the Leviathan is also all made up of men because it isn't actually some benevolent mm-hmm. force. Right. Right? But so, it... so if it's what corrupts people, then it's men corrupting people. Right. So then men is, man is corrupt. And this is why you shouldn't put so much trust in politicians. Oh my politicians. gosh. There's your takeaway right there. Fallible <laughs> human beings. They all do. I mean, all of these social contracts kind of end up 
in the same spot in that it's like, yeah, man has its their faults. Okay, and but even so even in the case of politics, why to, is it that the argument to uh, do depolarizing work between left and right, why is it the argument always, why does it come, come down to don't view them as a Democrat, view them as a human being and like do the work mm-hmm. to humanize them? I think the fact that our instinct is to go back to the individual and get like establish common ground on a human to human level. I think that betrays an inherent belief that somehow like the man beneath the social contract is still good and still worth loving and still worth knowing. Hmm. And I guess I would perceive it as, more so like polarizing groups is going back to again that deeply neo-darwinistic tribalist mindset and we have the gift of rationality and we know that that does i mean we can just look at history and be like this this kind of polarization and tribalism does not lead to okay so you're you're just saying like because because tribalistic thinking fucked us up in the past we have the benefit of viewing history right. and seeing that and projecting that into the future if we follow right. the same behavior but maybe that's part of the social contract that i'm in it's just being like yeah we're not gonna do that right huh oh man you got me you got my you got my brain spinning <laughs> oh this this was exciting i'm ready to raise a glass I hope you guys know that when we do cheers yeah. at the end of the episodes, I actually do lift my glass way over here in Billings, Montana. <laughs> Aww. Aww, oh, right on. Happy and sweet. This is the problem is like I could talk for like five more hours. Yeah, about this. but as we said, we all have adulting to do in the morning. So <laughs> <laughs> I know it Dang. sucks. Just kidding. I, I want to just take back what I said. I don't know why I just said that. Being an adult and having responsibility <laughs> And doing great things does not suck, and it never sucks. And I actually really hate yourself. Say that. Well done. Ran I a little also, tangent. for the record, I hate. <laughs> for the we record, I you. also hate the word adulting, and I hate. I fucking hate that I've used yeah. it a few times. Yeah, me too. I'm so sorry. Yeah. No, I know I have as well. <laughs> I hate that I called you no, a communist. Cat. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this, keep this on the air, Torno. Don't cut out yet. Like, cat. I do not. Oh, I will. I will. First of all. I'm glad we're having this conversation 20 episodes into launching this podcast because I feel like we finally have, we have a good rapport and we know where each other are coming from. And like, there are ways I act in the world that might not match what I'm saying here on the whiskey bench. Right. Um, especially if I start saying things that, uh, are pretty classically like Marxist lines. Right. (laughs) I'm trained to hear him. (laughs) And to be honest, I did. I never grew up in a house or never grew up in a culture that was like that trained me to hear them, I guess. Yeah. Not that I, I mean, this is, this is why I'm mostly apolitical is because I just don't, I don't know what to think. And I, man, like a philosophical discussion like this, I agree with Torna. I could go for like hours and hours more. This is what gives me the juice. I love getting down to the the fun part of this about this conversation is that we're not going to solve anything (laughs) and people for like thousands and thousands of years have been trying to answer the same questions and i like entering that rigorous like thought stream 
you know? You're part Absolutely. of the conversation. Yeah. Right. Although I, I, I have a different view on that. I mean, we might not solve something in quotes as far as what philosophers have been, been arguing, but, you know, maybe a year from now, something that we talk about in the next two, three episodes, you know, I learn something important. I then apply it to an element of my life and then something yeah. is solved. So I think these conversations on an individual level God, solve see, a lot of things. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. On the individual level, if we were trying to have this on a societal level under the social contract, it devolves into madness <laughs> because the social contract <laughs> teaches us to be tribalistic and evil. <laughs> There's an but argument. But on a one on one basis, yeah. like you humanize a person, you, you, you hand them a glass of whiskey or a cup of coffee and say, hey, let's talk about this. It's way harder to hate them. Mm-hmm. That's true. Oh, I will agree with that. 100%. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, on that note. So on that note. Fucking Yeah, I think cheers, that's, a, that's a good note. Here we end, go. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on The Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person with a text or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Mm-hmm.